This is the seventh in a series of talks by Joel titled The Practice of Inquiry 7, Are You the Experiencer? Recorded October 19th, 2006 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Okay, let's uh, see where we're at. We've been doing a practice of inquiry and... We've concentrated on trying to see if we actually are who we think we are. And we've uh, analyzed it in Western terms that most people think they are a body, they think they are their emotions, they think they are their thoughts, and they think they are some sort of agent of volition, the decider, the one who wills things to happen. And so we did what you do in a practice of inquiry, we went to look and see if that was true. And so we started examining those things and we found out, uh, well, first of all, not only am I not my body, there is no object called body out there. There's just a collection of impermanent phenomena, sensations and, and some sights and smells and tastes and sounds and they keep coming and going, coming and going. And Whatever I am, I am not coming and going, so I'm not any of that. And then we looked at our desires and our emotions, and they too arise and they pass away, they arise and pass away, they change. Uh, One minute there's anger, the next minute there's joy, and uh, I don't feel I'm changing as they all change, so I'm not that. And then we looked at our thoughts, and they whiz by, you know, this is like traffic in the fast lane. (laughs) And so even though sometimes they have appearance of being solid because they're all strung together, if we look at them closely, they're really ephemeral and I don't seem to be changing as they're changing. And then finally we went to look to see if we could find any decider sitting in the control room operating the machinery, so to speak, and we didn't find any decider there. So this has been a process of elimination, neti neti, not this, not this, not this, not this. So this raises a question though, if I am not any sort of object, any sort of thing that I can find apart from all this phenomena arising and passing away, maybe I am not an object appearing in consciousness and awareness, maybe I am the subject to consciousness. So maybe I'm not an object, but maybe I am somehow the consciousness. And some of you have sort of hit upon this. You've said, well, I don't know. What is there when I see all this stuff going by, all this phenomena, is a witness or an experiencer of all this experience. And a couple of you have raised this, and I've so far sort of just passed over it because I wanted to systematically get through the elimination process. But now we've arrived at that point of inquiry where we're going to shift and take a look and see, well, is this true? Maybe we are somehow the subject to consciousness. Maybe we are consciousness. Maybe we are some sort of awareness. Maybe something like that. So, then the question is, what is the subject to consciousness? And this is the key question in inquiry, in a spiritual inquiry, the core question that we've been working to get to. But it's very important that we go through the other inquiries first. 
So we don't have some attachment to some other ideas of what's going on. We thoroughly investigate it. And so now we're ready to really focus in on this key question. And this is true of all traditions, of the Janana approach in all traditions. Here's the uh, Hindu Upanishads, and this is what they say. It is not speech which we should want to know. We should know the speaker. It is not things seen which we should want to know. We should know the seer. It is not sounds which we should want to know. We should know the hearer. It is not mind which we should want to know. We should know the thinker. So the whole import of this is shifting the focus from the object to the subject, turning the attention around. Sloknoi Rinpoche, a contemporary Tibetan teacher, says the same thing. He says, What is this thinker that always grasps onto an object? That is what we need to discover. What is it really? Identify what it is that thinks clearly and directly. Let your mind recognize itself in an awake way. Again, this is the central question. Here's what Rumi says. You were born the children of God's vice-regent, but you have turned your eyes to this lowly world. Alas, how can you be happy with just this? So come, return to the root of the root of your own self. So again, we have this feeling of looking back. Where's the root of this awareness, this consciousness, this experience or, or witness? Here's what Zen master Dogen says. Stop the intellectual practice of investigating words and chasing after talk. Study the backward step of turning the light and shining it back. Body and mind will drop away of themselves and your original face will appear. So, somehow turning the light of consciousness, which normally illuminates all this phenomena out there, and turning it back. Where does it come from, we might ask that question. What is attention? What is this instrument we've been using in all this inquiry? Paying attention, paying attention, paying attention. Well, where does attention originate? And then, how would we discover it? How can the observer observe the observer? How can the experiencer experience the experiencer? How can the witness witness the witness? Lao Tzu, the great Taoist, gives us a clue. He says, I maintain inner stillness. The myriad creatures all arise together and I watch their return. Each returns to its root in stillness. This is what is meant by returning to one's true destiny. Returning to your true destiny, you know what is constant. Knowledge of the constant is called illumination. Let me go through this one more time because there's some idioms from the Chinese that 
if you are not familiar with, uh, you may not understand. First of all, I maintain inner stillness. Well, this is maintaining spacious awareness. This is maintaining the undistracted mind. Just what we practice when we do our concentration practice and then try to apply in our choiceless awareness. The myriad creatures all rise together. That's a Chinese expression and it means all phenomena. It doesn't just mean little squirrels running around, you know, in the underbrush. So all phenomena, the sights, the sounds, the sensations, everything we've been studying and observing, that's all the myriad creatures. They all rise together and I watch their return. Each returns to its root in stillness. So if we watch any phenomena, where does it go? That's what we want to find out. This is what is meant by returning to one's true destiny, or we would say returning to one's true nature. Returning to your true destiny, you know what is constant. Oh, isn't this been a clue in our inquiry? All this stuff comes and goes, but there's something constant, something that doesn't come and go, or a somewhat, let me not say thing. A sense of whatever I am is not coming and going. Knowledge of the constant is called illumination, or recognition, realization, enlightenment, gnosis, those are our terms. What he's saying is that any of these myriad creatures, any phenomena, will take you back to, it will take attention back, I should say, to that ocean of consciousness out of which it arose. That fundamental awareness, that seems to be present through all this. So, let's try this with ringing the gong and listening to the sound of the gong and follow it back to its root. And it's very important to follow it until the sound itself is totally gone. Okay? Here we go. Were you able to follow that until it was gone? Couldn't get to the place it went to. You couldn't get the place it went to. Oh, interesting. Why couldn't you get the place it went to? Where did it go? Yeah. I noticed what happened to me was as it was fading to close to nothing, there was another sound that the mind went to. Wonderful. Hold on to that little insight. We're going to come to that later. I don't want to go there now. Is that the 
Hmm. Hmm? The pulse. That 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 ring disappeared, but there was kind of a pulsing. Mm-hmm. Two sounds. That's okay. You're supposed to keep listening until the pulsing is gone. You did. Okay. So, where did it go? Just silence. Yes, okay. It went to silence. Or stillness, we might say. That's what uh, Lao Tzu said, right? So, he said, they all rise together, together and I watch their return. Each returns to its root in stillness. So, that's true, right? It goes to stillness. What else about that stillness is there? It's empty. That's exactly right. There's nothing there. And yet, what remains? Even when the sound phenomena disappears. The watcher. Okay, yes, that's a good way to put it. The watcher. What is the watcher? Isn't it pure awareness? The awareness didn't go anywhere, did it? There's awareness, and there's the sound, and then the sound disappears completely, but the awareness doesn't. Let's try this one more time, okay? Did everybody get the stillness, the silence? And in that silence, there is still awareness. There's awareness of the silence, pure awareness, awareness undistracted at just that little moment by anything, any other thing. What's happening? Attention for just one little instant has touched awareness. And what is attention? Attention is awareness, right? So it's awareness suddenly meeting awareness. Here's what Garb Dorje, a Tibetan master, says about realization, enlightenment. He says, Awareness itself is self-liberated by means of awareness, like water dissolving into water. One's own nature simply encounters itself, but its essence transcends all expression in words. It is like space dissolving into space. Awareness discovers awareness. Consciousness discovers consciousness. So, here we have a method to do this. Just follow any phenomena back to its root. Follow it to the point where it vanishes. We've seen all this phenomena is impermanent. Some of them hang around for a long time, but some of them are very quick. 
follow any back to its root in nothing, in stillness, in silence. And if attention is really undistracted and focused on that, then there's a moment where awareness contacts awareness, we could put it that way. That is where the possibility of realization lies. It's not guaranteed because there has to be a recognition. Ah, this is it. This is who I am. This is what everything is. It has to be that recognition, that non-conceptual cognition, that direct insight. So, anything will do it. Our problem isn't that such a rare opportunity is here. Our problem is that everything is an opportunity. We are overwhelmed with an embarrassment of riches. Where do I look? What do I pick? What should I follow? A bhakti would say, this whole world is pointing to God. It's shouting God. It's saying, look where I come from. Look where I go every second. How could you possibly miss it? So... In theory, you could watch anything, but if you try to watch everything, your attention will just be scattered all over the place, and it has to be totally focused. That's the point. This is why we practice to have an undistracted mind. This is why meditators spend years building this concentration and having the ability to, to have things come and go and, and not grasp at them, not push them away, not be caught up in thoughts and stories and all that. But in theory, anything would do it. And this is why, for instance, if you are a bhakti doing a mantra practice, you use it to focus your energy, your desires, and so forth. And then you use it to sink down into your heart, and there are a lot of things you can do with it. But finally, at the end, what you do with it is use it to take you to God. And it's the exact same principle as Lao Tzu said. Here's the Upanishads again. By sound we go to silence. The sound of Brahman is Om. With Om we go to the end. The silence of Brahman. The end is immortality, union, and peace. So, you've been doing Om, and that's been your practice. And you've been doing it for years and years and you've learned to have your total concentration on Aum and then one day you go, oh, why don't I stop looking at the Aum? Why don't I look where the Aum goes? Aum. It's just like the sound of the gong, isn't it? It takes you right back to the source. So, that's one of the little creatures, right? So just exactly what, uh, exactly what Lao Tzu said. Look how precise these instructions are. This is why this is a sacred science. It's also why Zen students often wake up in peculiar circumstances. Because anything will take you back. There's stories about how the master blows out the light of a candle. There's a flame, and then the flame is gone. Went back to that nothing, that stillness. One of my favorite stories is about a 
meditator, I've forgotten his name, became a famous Zen master, but before that he was meditating probably on some koan, like, you know, does a dog have a Buddha nature? And he was struggling with that, struggling with that, and he just got sick of it. And he says, screw that. And then he went outside and he started clearing a field with a side just to, you know, do some work. And he hit a pebble, and the pebble flew up in the air, and there was a, a little fence around there made of hollow bamboo posts. And the pebble hit one of the little posts and made a talk sound. His mind opened up. So we read these funny little stories, and what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what, this is what's going on here. His mind was exhausted. He'd been working on this thing and not getting anywhere, and not getting anywhere. He's totally stuck, and his mind just stopped, and he just forgot about his mind, and he went outside. His mind is like just blank. And then in that, there's one sound arising out of the great Tao, out of the stillness, and then it goes back, and his tension had nothing else to follow, and it went with that, and there it is. So obvious. So, there are these possibilities, but for most seekers, probably the most effective thing to watch, to follow back to its source, is a thought. And the reason for this is that it's thought which creates the distinctions that deceive us. So, if there is no thought present, there is no possibility of delusion in that just one moment. That doesn't mean there's necessarily realization, because I said, the moment has to be recognized. But for that moment, delusion is suspended. You don't know nothing, because there's no thought. You can't know anything. So if you follow a gong, the sound of a gong, and you get to that stillness, and then immediately the mind says, Ah, I see the stillness. I got it now. Yes. Well, you fill the gap with thought. You see what I mean? And you've reified the stillness. You've turned it into an idea, a concept called stillness. Because you got it. Now you understand stillness. You put that name on it, you stamped it, and now it's safe. You understand what I'm talking about here? But if you follow the thought, oh yes, I got it, and the it goes, and for a moment there's no thought, that's pure. This is why another great Tibetan yogi, Milarepa, says, In the gap between two thoughts, thought-free wakefulness manifests unceasingly. Just in the gap between two thoughts. And this is also why Ramana Maharshi gave this instruction to his students, which he considered the highest teaching and the most profound instruction. And this is the heart of it. This is what he says. When other thoughts arise, one should not pursue them, but should inquire, to whom did they arise? It does not matter how many thoughts arise. As each thought arises, one should inquire with diligence. To whom has this thought arisen? The answer that would emerge would be, to me. Whereupon, if one inquires, who am I? 
The mind will go back to its source, and the thought that arose will become quiescent. With repeated practice in this manner, the mind will develop the skill to stay in its source. When the mind stays in the heart, the I, which is the source of all thoughts, will go. And the self, which ever exists, will shine. I tell you the truth, I have found very few people, including among Ramana Maharshi's faithful followers, who understand what this is at all. And certainly haven't done all the preliminary inquiry that he himself recommends. He starts out, like I said, this little book, Spiritual Teachings, with the whole thing. I am not the body, I am not the humorous in the body, I am not the perceptions, da-da-da-da-da. That's the starting point, the launching pad for this inquiry. So, let's go through it one more time. Because it's exactly what Lao Tzu said. It's exactly what Milarepa said. When other thoughts arise, one should not pursue them, but should inquire. This is one of the reasons we practice not getting caught up in chains of thought. Because you can't just decide not to pursue them. You've had to have practiced to have an undistracted mind. So, these thoughts arise, and you don't get lost in them. You don't get carried away in them. You look at the thought, and you say... To whom did they arise? That's who is the experiencer, who is the thinker, who is the witness? It does not matter how many thoughts arise. As each thought arises, one should inquire with diligence. To whom has this thought arisen? Actually, what you're doing is you're chopping the chain of thought by asking the question. So some, you know, thoughts start arising about, I don't know, what you're going to have for lunch today, and, and then you say, oh, to whom are these thoughts arising? Now there's a thought in the mind. To whom are these thoughts arising? There's a little phrase of thought, I should say, right? And then he says, the answer that would emerge would be to me. Well, in the beginning especially, this probably is going to be the answer. Your mind is probably just going to say that automatically. Well, of course, to me. Who else, dummy? So, okay, now there's, now there's even a shorter little two words. To me. That's what's in the mind. Okay? Whereupon, if one inquires, who am I? The mind will go back to its source, and the thought that arose will become quiescent. Who am I is the pointer. Who am I is the sound of the gong. You following what I'm saying? Who am I is the last thought in the mind, and you follow that, and it becomes quiescent. It goes to stillness. It goes to silence. Who am I? Everybody, I want you to just think in your mind, not out loud. Who am I? If you let it go, if you don't follow it up with other thoughts about, well, let's see, I'm Joel, I'm sitting here in this tree center, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here, but I am here, yeah. If you let it go completely and not tag on another thought, it takes you to quiescence, exactly what everybody else has said. <clears throat> with repeated practice in this manner, <clears throat> with repeated practice in this manner, with repeated practice in this manner, 
the mind will develop the skill to stay in its source. See, the thought takes you there, and at first you're just going to have a flash of this silence and stillness, but you keep doing it, and eventually the attention learns to settle down there. Even if other things are going on, it can totally ignore them. It learns to rest in that silence. We'll develop the skill to stay in the source. When the mind stays in the heart, this is a big H, and this is one of his terms for consciousness itself. When the mind, and when he's using mind, or the translator's using mind, but to be more precise, when attention stays in the heart, in consciousness, the I, which is the source of all thoughts, will go. That I, this is the primitive distinction between I and other. And then he says... The I, which is the source of all thoughts, will go, and the self, which ever exists, will shine. That's self with a big S, that's true self, Atman, which is Brahman, etc., etc. It's there, when that veil is lifted, when that original distinction vanishes, that's what's left. So, does everybody get this instruction? Because this is what we're going to be doing now. I mean, did, oh, that's just so great. That just simplifies it so much. Because I'm sitting there going, who am I? And then trying to figure it out. <laughs> well, yes, you're never going to figure it out. But again, for example, you can say something a million times, and I think I'm listening, and then all of a sudden it just seems really clear. Good. I feel like I know exactly what to not do now. <laughs> Very good. Well put. <laughs> so sometimes well, when I think to whom does this thought occur, uh, oh, there's space there for a lot of other little thoughts to come in and I start thinking a bunch of stuff before me comes in. And I even have to sort of maybe, if that happens, I have to contrive that me before I can move on. Okay. Can you speak to yeah. It really doesn't matter what thought you follow. Mm -hmm. If you do this for a while, the mind might not say to me. You might just say, to whom is this thought occurring? If it just goes, let it just go. Right there. You can get good at this where you just catch yourself off on a train of thought. And sometimes it can be a really powerful train of thought that's really carried you away, you know. And then, if you just become aware at that moment and let the last thought go, it'll take you there. You see what I'm talking about? So the, the content is irrelevant. This is just a way uh, to remind you to do this. So you're sitting there and a bunch of thoughts are going and you say, okay, so to whom are these thoughts occurring? And the other thing about this is, any thought will take you there, but if you sit there and try and watch every single thought, you'll just go crazy. So you want to sit there and you want to wait a little bit and find a nice, big, juicy, prominent one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it seems, in my experience, the, the thought if it's a thought that I don't have an answer to is more helpful. It, it happened to me. Kind of similar, a little different, but I was 
thinking about something that you said. I was lying in my bed, and, um, and I said, oh, what, what did Joel ask me here? I forget exactly what I said, but, and I didn't know, and just in that moment, I was, there was a confusion. Bewilderment. Totally bewildered. Yeah. In fact, I didn't know anything in that moment. All I had was this breathing, and just breathing. And it was strange, you know, I didn't... And then, uh, and there wasn't a reference, there wasn't a self-reference. I remember that thought arose and that started bringing me <laughs> Like, there's not a self-reference. And that's when I noticed... Well, now there is. <laughs> well, now this is very interesting. We've talked about this before on other retreats especially. You just described what Ibn Arabi said, this whole path leads to bewilderment. You just described what the author of The Cloud of Unknowing talks about. We must enter the cloud of unknowing. There was the cloud of unknowing. There was bewilderment. There were all the things that all these mystics say, the path ends in kenosis, it ends in emptiness, it ends in this, and there you were, and it wasn't spiritual. No, not the least bit. <laughs> no, right. So you didn't recognize it, so you, you moved on, and you got a thought, a nice good spiritual thought about self-reference and all that. Yes? You know, I've tried to do this maybe 700 times, maybe 800 times, and I've done it maybe... A handful of times. So it's what in tennis they call a low percentage shot. You know, I got <laughs> something less than one chance in a hundred of being able to do this at this retreat. So wait a minute, why do you I don't get this. Why do you say that? <laughs> if you do it eight hundred times, then I your have. your your chances of doing it the next time decrease or what? Yeah. But I've only that's only I've only been able to, to watching a thought disappear. Right. Thoughts don't disappear for me. They stick around, they ask for a glass of water before they go to bed. They, they don't disappear that way. I mean, where I can watch them, another thought will come in and kick the other one out, you know, and so I'll have that thought. But, and then I notice, oh, well, the first thought's gone. But there's no realization there because one... Well, in point of fact, there is always a moment where this thought did go, obviously, because it's not there anymore. So the trick is your attention is doing what Rich said. Before it actually goes, it's jumping to the next thing on the horizon. So it's skipping over the gap. So even if a thought feels like it's coming up, doesn't matter if your attention is totally on this thought going down. That's why if I ring the gong and I can really focus my attention on that sound, it doesn't matter if there's a car horn honking someplace or, uh, you know, something going on. The point is, the moment of nothingness isn't like the whole screen has gone black. It's like this one dot of light on the screen is gone and I've got a point of nothing. You follow what I'm saying? It's said to be a good meditative state. Yes, that's right. That's why we practice so much. Or some other things will put you in a good meditative state other than spiritual practice. You know, God might grant you some great shock, like you're going to die in 10 minutes. That can put people in a meditative state. Their mind goes crystal clear. No distraction, 
You're not thinking about, oh, you know, what am I going to eat at lunch today? And I hope they don't serve that miso soup again. No, it just clarifies. So it's not necessarily spiritual practice. Life can do it for us, but uh, we don't have to wait. That's the point. So I would suggest this to you as a practical matter. Be a little bit more creative. Make the practice yours. Try with some thoughts, different kinds of thoughts, listen to some sounds, be a little creative. That's how you get to those unexpected things. That's what brings the mind to a stop. Yes, if it's routine, if you've done it a hundred times and you think you know how to do it, your attention isn't there. It's mechanical. Your attention, of course, is going to go off. It doesn't want to just do something mechanical. Okay? Okay, let's do some practice. Let's get in our meditative position here. And we'll start the same way. Concentration. till so you stabilize your tension. And then you can move through the fields into spacious awareness. And then when you're ready, start noticing thoughts. And, as I said before, don't try to do the practice with every thought. Wait until you get a juicy thought. And then you simply ask, to whom is this thought occurring? And if the mind says, to me, then you ask, who am I? And who am I is the thought in your mind that you allow to self-liberate and follow it with the attention until it completely vanishes. And you want attention to contact that moment of the absence of that thought. And then even if it does contact, the chances are the next moment it's going to be distracted by something and jump around or an excited thought's going to come in and comment, that's fine, don't get all upset. Just wait a while for another several waves of thought to come and then get another big juicy one and do it again. If you ask the question, to whom is this thought occurring, and the mind doesn't say to me, well, the thought, to whom is this thought occurring... will take you to the same place. If after a while you're doing this practice and even to ask the question seems awkward and cumbersome, if you can just look at the big juicy thought in your mind and allow it to self-liberate and follow it with your attention, that will do the trick too. So, you experiment within the practice. Do it in a relaxed but alert way. And you got plenty of time here. You've got lots of space. And it's much better to try a few of them when you're ready and completely undistracted and really do it than be trying to do it too much, too much, and too much. Okay? Here we go.
If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. So, how are we doing with this new practice we introduced of following a thought or any phenomena back to the source? Well, um, here's what happened when I, um, when I tried to deal. It, it felt really cumbersome when I was saying the part about um, who, uh, who is this thought occurring to? So, I, but I, I kept saying it. And then I was, then I went back to my breath, and then it just came into my head, that, that statement that I made, I'm not smart. So then I, I started saying, I'm not smart, who am I? So I started repeating that, and that felt really comfortable, that, that felt better. And then um, pretty soon I dropped the I'm not smart, and I just kept on saying, who am I? So I did that for a long time. And then I dropped the who, and I just started saying, I am. And it felt like, um, I felt like my concentration was really better than it's ever been. So for me, that's a big, that's something. That's great. And that's just what I mean about you have to customize these practices for yourself. You got the principle of it, and you try it the way it's presented, and then you adjust based on your own individual quirks. And that's a perfect example of that. So keep going. Keep going. Uh, well, I had experiences come up, and I, so then I have a question about what to do with those. Because, like, one thing that would happen is when the thought would you know, liberate or whatever, um, there'd be like this little electrical thing mm, that you yeah. was talking about. And so then, that was kind of distracting. I mean, it was like, I didn't know what to do if I sh should be trying to follow the electrical thing. Or kind of, yeah. So maybe you have some... Yes. <clears throat> That's very interesting. We haven't talked about this, but uh, you've noticed it, so let's go ahead and talk about it. When we liberate a thought, any thought actually, the energy that's in the thought is released. It's like a photon being released. And it goes into the awareness. You don't have to do anything about it. It will liberate itself as well, but it has an interesting effect. It tends to make the awareness brighter. And if you do this for a while, and never mind trying to follow the thought back, it is distracting. Here's something else filling the gap. But do this for a while, and your 
awareness should become brighter and brighter and brighter, which will make it more discriminating, and then you will have a very serviceable mind, a very bright, refined mind. It'll be very sharp. And then start watching the thought as it completely dissolves. So just stick with that for a while and see what happens. And one thing about that, too, you were talking about, you know, wait for a big, juicy thought. Mm -hmm. And it was the big, juicy thoughts that were like, you know, really high voltage. The more uh, emotionally charged the thought, the more energy will be released. That's why in advanced Tibetan practices, <clears throat> they want you to have strong lust thoughts, strong anger thoughts, strong prideful thoughts, you know, the stronger the better. It feeds into the practice. So where normally in the beginning, anybody in the beginning of the path, uh, these strong afflicted emotions are a big problem and we do need to learn to deal with them. They sway us this way and that way. They're constantly knocking us off our seat. So there are various ways we first practice detachment and either grasping or pushing away. We check our tendency, our conditioned tendency to act on them. Uh, we do all these things. We learn to transmute them and stuff like that. But ultimately, they are helpers. This is where you realize the wrathful deities are there to serve you in mythic terms. So, fine. Go ahead and generate some stronger thoughts. Don't be afraid of them. See what happens. Miriam. I'm finding it pretty difficult. It's pretty subtle. Pretty what? Subtle. Yes. <laughs> um, and it felt like instead of the ocean being calm, there were still waves joshing back and forth. But, uh, um, but one thing I've been doing is this thing that you brought up at the beginning of the retreat about um, we're always our minds are always trying to correlate things, mm -hmm. and just the word discontinuity, and I'm just trying to notice all the discontinuities that it's like I'm expecting such and such to happen, like I'm walking down the path and there's no going to be nobody there and suddenly there's somebody there. It's just all these little discontinuities, so there's like a break at that point. So that's... Well, that's wonderful. So that's fine. It's not exactly this practice, but actually it's in the discontinuity that the truth is revealed. So uh, keep watching it. But it's just as important to be able to notice how our minds keep having to construct this reality out of discontinuities. I mean, we divide everything up and now we have to put it back together and we don't notice, we, we screen out the, the correlations that don't work. It just seems that there's a lot more now that I'm looking at. Yes, of course. See, you said before, this is very subtle, this moment. It's subtle to a gross mind. I don't mean your mind, particularly, Miriam, is like particularly gross. It's, that's the condition of our conditioned minds. And so one of the reasons we spend so much preliminary time, you know, training the mind and concentration, choices, awareness... We're refining our attention, refining it, refining, noticing little things that we never noticed before. That when we start to notice them, they start to become obvious. They really aren't that subtle. It's just that 
We have been ignoring them. We have been overlooking them. And I started this whole retreat by saying, our fundamental problem is that we are ignorant of the ultimate reality, which is here all the time. Literally, we ignore it. Our attention skips over it and doesn't see it. So what we're trying to do here, our practice is to cease to ignore reality. This is what our whole training is about. And it's been about from the beginning. Stop ignoring reality. Now, Ramana Maharshi says, uh, and I'm going to quote this again, we already heard it. With repeated practice in this manner, the mind will develop the skill to stay in its source. When the mind stays in the heart, the I, which is the source of all thoughts, will go, and the self, which ever exists, will shine. Repeated practice, repeated practice, and this is the problem everybody runs into. They do a little of it, and it's boring. They go to some self-inquiry workshop, and they do a little of it, and then they go have their lunch, and then they forget about it, and they certainly don't do it when they get home, back from the workshop. But it doesn't work that way. And most people like that are people who don't train in meditation. So not only do they just do it a little bit, but their minds are totally unserviceable to begin with. So no wonder it doesn't work. So let's just... Uh, did you have a question there? Yeah, this makes it sound <clears throat> like uh, almost like learning a skill, like being a musician or a martial artist or something, where you know, repeated practice just means maybe thousands of times, and, and one way of looking at that is that doing it over and over, what you're really doing is unlearning all the conditioning we require up to this point. Is that That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, there, uh, and the, I guess, is it Tibetan tradition? Yes. I think it was some cop or somebody was asked, what's your secret? And he said this, and he got him, and he showed them his callous backside from sitting on a cushion so much. <laughs> So we have, you know, four principles here. Attention, we've got to pay attention. That means stop ignoring. We've got to pay attention. But in order to learn to pay attention, or rather, it's better to say, in order to unlearn our restless mind, it takes commitment. It does take commitment. That's all there is to it. Now, here's a refinement, very important. When you follow the thought, attention follows the thought, and it dissolves, you have to stay with it until it's gone without a trace. Without a trace. And this, this is what, again, back to what you were talking about. Your attention wants to jump off it before it's gone without a trace. And it can be, for all intents and purposes, gone, but there's still a little verberation, just like this gone. You know what I mean? And then attention really wants to leave. You've sucked all the meaning out of that thought you're going to get. And you want to go on to the next thought. But it's really important to see it go without a trace. That just the way you can hear, if you listen to that gong, the last... And there's this almost palatable silence.
Here's what Tibetan scholar John Reynolds says. First, we must recognize each thought as a thought. But simultaneously with this recognition, we allow the thought to self-liberate, dissolving into its original condition of emptiness and pure potentiality without leaving a trace behind. And this includes the thoughts of your spiritual coach. So, you know, it, it goes, it goes, and then you see, yes, that last little bit of energy, it goes, and there's nothing. And then the coach says, now you got it. <laughs> now you got it. And guess what? What do you do? Now you got it. Got it. That also self-liberates. Here's um, Tuku Ergen Rinpoche, another Tibetan. Notice how we've seamlessly switched from Ramana Maharshi to the Tibetans, because they have the exact same practice. And actually, Tibetans, being Buddhists, of course, you know, elaborate a little bit more on it. Ramana Maharshi leaves you with watching the thought go back to the heart, and that's, you know... But since they spent 2,000 years up there in the mountains with nothing else to do, they've really examined this, you know. <laughs> Here's what he says. And this addresses just this business of the coach. and you know. Thinking I am undistracted, one is keeping account, establishing a reference point, fabricating the thought of non-distraction. By establishing the non-distraction and casting away the distraction, one is accepting and rejecting, keeping and casting away. When there is no thought, it is like not wearing any clothes. It is naked, exposed. Thinking, I am undistracted, however, is like putting clothes on again. So he's just warning you to be careful of the coach. The coach is the one who says, oh... Oh, now I'm, I've reached non-distraction. Now I should start doing my practice. True non-distraction, true absence of thought, as he says, it's like being completely naked. It's like unknowing. The cloud of unknowing. It's not knowing that I don't know. It's not even knowing that. This business of catching that moment of absolute nakedness when the thought disappears, in the beginning it just has to be for a moment. So be satisfied with a momentary recognition. Otherwise you'd be racing way ahead of yourself. Okay? Now, this is the second and crucial point. The first is you have to allow the thought to liberate without a trace. The second one is that when it is gone without a trace, you have to be able to surrender all effort whatsoever, including the effort at practice. This is the moment, the true moment of non-meditation that is talked about in all these Dzogchen teachings. For some of you who may be familiar with Dzogchen, and they always talk about non-meditation, we don't meditate. And there's only one moment when you don't meditate. 
That's that moment when you've contacted the ground. Because any effort to practice at that point will just send your attention off the moment. You, you got that? Once you're there, you don't make any effort. Once the puppy dog is sitting, you don't give it a command to sit. It'll just confuse it. What could it do with a command to sit when it's already sitting? What could you do when you give your attention some command when it's already there where it's supposed to be? Now, I must say that in the beginning, when you're watching the thought reverberate to its uh, very end so that it leaves without a trace, it requires right at that moment, just as it's going, a little spurt of effort which I like to describe as a traffic cop in an intersection, holding back the cars. You need to almost to hold back the next thought that's coming. So if you can imagine an intersection and you want to get one moment when this intersection is clear and the cars are coming through, and as one car passes through, the next car comes right behind it, and there's a gap, but the whole intersection is never clear. So if you are a traffic cop, you step in there, and you allow this car to go, and you go, and you get that car just to tap their brake for a second. And then there's one moment where the whole intersection is clear, and then that's where you surrender the effort. Then you let go. Right there. So you might try making that little effort, but make sure you let the effort go as soon as it's gone without a trace, as soon as you're in that gap. Surrender all effort. That surrender of all effort, once you're there, this is crucial. It has to vanish without a trace, and you have to be able to surrender all effort when it does. So those are the two refinements that I'm introducing this afternoon, okay? So, let's try this. I've given you the instructions. You got the map, go find the treasure. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.